When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is The Artist and the Athlete. And if you told me I would be having a conversation with Shaquille O'Neal about DJing with one of the most popular electronic dance music duos on the planet, I would have thought you were out of your mind. But here we are, Shaq and the Chainsmokers, and this was epic. Shaq, AKA DJ Diesel, is not only a four-time NBA champ, but he's also one of the most likable superstar athletes. And he's enamored with the Chainsmokers because of how talented these guys are. Their music is in Infectious. Alex Paul and Drew Taggart are Grammy Award-winning DJs, songwriters, producers, but they're also massive childhood Shaq fans. Hearing these three connect was wild. They have so much in common from their work ethic to their stints as Vegas resident DJs, their goals as entrepreneurs and investors. We talk about all of it and they gave me an education. For example, Shaq had to channel the same intensity he used in the NBA to find his groove as a DJ. That means figuring out that 128 beats per minute is not his strong suit. He had to find his preferred tempo. We begin this talk with an awesome story shared by one of the chain smokers. It's such a thrill to talk to all of you here. I mean, Shaq, I think the last time I was sitting with you, we were doing Sports Center at the Hall of Fame induction. So it's great to see you again. And I've just got to tell you guys, Drew and Alex, you guys are on a constant playlist at our house. So huge fans of all of yours. How do you guys know each other? When was the first time you met? At Shaq's house, he was making pancakes. (laughs) (laughs) We came down to make a video for Tomorrowland. And I remember walking in and he was cooking pancakes in his kitchen, which was pretty sick. And just to like give some color as well. Like I was the biggest Shaquille O'Neal fan growing up. Oh, really? Bar none. Like he was my hero. I used to write him like handwritten letters. And I remember he took me into his house in Orlando and was like, this is the room with all the letters. And it was like a room bigger than my house at the time, just with fan letters. You know, it was like one of the coolest days for me ever. So it's sick to like be friends with him now. And obviously he's a musician and he's the man. What would you say in the letters? I mean, I was young. I was like 10 years old, 12 years old. I had all of the gear, everything he had. And I'd just be like, Shaq, I'm your biggest fan. I love you. You know, like the things that you would write, like your hero. I don't even know if I knew how to spell back then. So it's cool that we're homies now. That's one of those great life moments. And I want to thank these guys because, because they accepted me. Everybody accepted me. So <laughs> I've been DJing since the 80s. Nobody know. Previous, before we did the Tomorrowland commercial, I've seen it. And for me, it was like, it felt like a game seven. I wanted to do it. So I begged the powers of be to let me DJ at the next one. Small stage, big stage, whatever. It was a whole bunch of no, 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 no. And then somebody said, hey, let's shoot a commercial with the Chainsmokers. So I was like, the Chainsmokers know who I am? Oh, yes, we do. The crazy thing is, even though I'm Shaq and everybody knows me, I'm still a regular person. So whenever I get to meet other famous people, I was like, oh, my God. The chain smokers are coming to the house. So they they came to the house. We shot the commercial. It was cool. And because they shot the commercial with me, it went viral. Yep. People started going crazy. But I want to thank you guys for accepting me. And I appreciate it because I know how it is coming from one world, entering to another world, just like that. 
you know, you guys worked from the bottom and worked your way up. And for me to just come in and do that right away, it was a lot of reluctancy. So I just want to thank you guys, Flakes. I mean, you put in the work, man, man. Like, you got collabs and songs out everywhere. And I see your videos. Like, you have one of the best shows that any DJ has. You're as big as any DJ out there right now, as far as I'm concerned. And then I had a show in Vegas one time. So I'm playing and people just keep leaving. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on? They just keep leaving, right? And then they say, hey, the chain smokers are next door. So I got 10 minutes left. So I was like, all right. So I'm playing. And then I just go, you know, jump on stage. Then, but they had Vegas rocking. Yeah. They had Vegas rocking. Remember that night? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You guys played together in Vegas, didn't you? Yeah, he came up. We played for like, I don't know, like half hour or something together. It was fun. I mean, the win is the best casino in Vegas. And it's great because... They have all these great artists from Shaq to Drake, Kygo, and all these other great guys that play there. And everyone gets to hang out, you know, and that part of it makes it really fun and has this great community. So whenever we like hear another guy's playing the same night as us, it's never like, oh, it's competition. It's like, nice, we're going to get to hang out at some point tonight, hopefully. But if you DJ, you got to make sure you DJ five hours before the Chainsmokers. If the Chainsmokers <laughs> are in the building, people will leave your set. I mean, because I'm dropping some bangers and I just see <laughs> 700. 400, 200, <laughs> 100 to 20. So I asked my guy what's going on. He's like, man, the chain smokers next door. I was like, shit, I'm leaving too then. Let's go. <laughs> it's funny you say that. We oddly had dinner with Drake and a couple friends like a week ago. And he came and flew to Vegas with like all the Raptors when they won the finals. And they're like, yo, Drake's taking over excess. You guys will DJ your normal thing. And then he'll come on, you know, and then they'll all be there. So I was like, shit, we got to like change our setup. I got to download like every Drake song on the planet. And then like every other hip hop song that's popular. And so I'm like planning the whole day, trying to make sure we're all prepared. And they showed up at like 10 p.m. to start the party there. So the club's already fully sold out. It's like 12,000 people. They fit into excess. And I remember like going up and Drake's like, what up? Good to see you guys. He's like, yo, I'm getting out of here right now. We're all going to the strip club. And I was like, what? Oh. I've been planning this whole day thinking you were going to hang around. And then I right. saw him and I brought it up. And he was like, yo, my bad. I didn't know. Like we came and we went. That's like the funny thing about DJing is like for every like big show we've played, we've played like probably 10 tiny clubs in that same city. No matter like how many big songs that you have or whatever stages you play, there's always a moment where like someone comes into the club and you better come correct and you're just stressed. I mean, like I remember Alex, you telling me about like playing at One Oak like 2012 and Tiesto would come in and Richie would be like, what are you doing put on Tiesto? And then what, Jay-Z would yeah, walk Jay-Z. in and be like, why are you playing Tiesto? Jay-Z's here. And then oh, yeah. you had to like switch really? back and forth. And so it's so funny, like 10 years later, you know, after all the things that we've done, you're still like, you got to come correct and make sure you're prepared. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, what I also like about the Vegas show is I thought I had the big room. Yeah. <laughs> I did. I thought I had the big room. And then when everybody left and I went to see what I was playing, I was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> <laughs> they didn't show you that one. This is where like the big, big DJs play. I was like, man, I was so jealous. But I think I'm getting that room next year. So looking forward to it. I think we played at every Vegas club there is at this point. And I remember like opening up for W&W at Marquee Day Club. And we were like so stoked. It was like a huge opportunity for us. We used to make these bootleg edits to like kind of cheat sheet. And they were like eight minutes long of like just crazy vocal banger, crazy vocal banger that like really thought out. And they were like, all right, it's time to switch over. 
And we were like, we can't. And they're like, what do you mean? We're like, there's eight minutes left on this bootleg. <laughs> and they were like, and they were like giving us, a, you know, like they're our friends, but it's just like funny. You have those moments where you're just like eye opening moments. Stop the, the tape. Drew, did you just turn your camera off so you can get a puff of yeah. your e-cigarette? <laughs> Is that what you're doing? <laughs> you don't think I saw that? You were the first person to call me out on that, by the way. <laughs> I wouldn't know what you're doing until you breathe and I saw smoke. I'm like, it's not cold. That must be an e-cigarette. I got Zoom fatigue, you know? I, I need something to just get through these things, you know? Uh, uh, it is a lot of Zooms, right? Oh, I want to yeah. hear how it started for all of you guys. And Shaq, I mean, you just said that people didn't know. They didn't know that you were DJing through the 80s. For all of you, though, how did the interest in it start? So for me, from 13 to when I retired, it's all about <sighs> down by one <sighs> or even boo, you suck. So when I retired, I didn't have that. I get like little minor glints of like I go to a restaurant, but then it would stop. So <laughs> I was dating this girl and she took me to Tomorrow World. And I've never seen anything like this in my life. Now, I haven't been to the M&Ms, the Chasey's. They do like 20, 30,000. When I went to Tomorrow World, it was was damn near half a million people there. No cops, no fights, no altercations, shows, lights, everything. And then I was like, I DJ. Yeah. So I'm telling the people at tomorrow, it's like, yeah, sure you do. And a lot of celebrity DJs have messed it up. So when I first said I'm a DJ, they put me in the celebrity DJ category. I had to prove myself. No problem. Because one thing I, I would like to do is be on the stage next to a chain smokers, next to a Tiesto, and I want them to know and understand that I respect their crafts. They paved the way for, even though I'm an old guy, for young DJs like me. And then it's all about, you know, competition. When I first got to Tomorrow World and they gave me a stage, they gave me the small stage. Like 2,000 people there. Then I walk a couple hundred feet over you got Tiesto playing for 600,000. That's what I want. So you just, you know, you keep working, you keep working. But for me, it's all about the adrenaline. It's just about that game seven. And it's sort of like a game seven because you have to come with it. That first song, if you don't catch it with that first song, it's like being in the finals missing a couple threes in a row. So I always try to get them with the first couple of songs. And then once I feel the energy, I could just go into my bag and, you know, just keep it going all night. You know, as a kid, you wanted to be like Jordan and Magic this guy. So as a DJ, I want to be like the Chainsmokers. I want to be like Tiesto. I want to be like Wookie. I want to be like my favorite DJs because... You know, you think you're a great player until you see somebody great. And that happened to me that night in Vegas because I played that club and I was jamming. I was doing pretty good. And people just kept leaving. I'm like, where is everybody going? It's like the chain smoker. And then you go next door and you really see a show. So now you have to be like, damn, I got to go back in my bag. But, you know, when you watch great guys, it just makes you greater. This is crazy that you just said you want to be like me. <laughs> it's the most serendipitous thing that's ever happened in my life. It is. Can we go back for one second to the room with the letters? Do you keep all the letters that people have sent you over the years? I keep some of the letters. I think what he's talking about is I wrote Halle Berry one time and she wrote me back. So that's the most famous letter I have. Yeah. But <laughs> I keep a lot of the letters. I really do. Very nice. How did you become as skilled as you are in DJing? I used to be a battle DJ. So first I started scratching. Then I learned mixing. I would do parties in college just to make $20, 40 $50, right? Then I got away from it and started doing albums. But then I started producing again. And then 
I just got back to it. Like every time I go to a club, I've always got on the CDJs and turntables and try to, you know, rock the house. But when I went to Tomorrow World, that was something different. And then I said to myself, okay, the dubstep crowd, the kids, that's what I like. Like I tried to do what the dubstep kids, like I don't know what they're smoking or taking, but I like that hard stuff and they'd be out there fighting and moss pitting. Yeah, you get in the crowds, those videos of you when you jump in the crowds and stuff, that's epic. You know what I mean? Those are the connections that you want to make as an artist. And like having Drew starting to sing was like our version of that, you know, but it's cool because you did exactly what you said. You were like respected everybody's place in the category. And like everyone was so excited to have someone that took it seriously like you. And like your shows are, they're ripped. They're really crazy. Thank you. Yeah. That means a lot coming from the chain smokers who stole my goddamn audience when I was in Vegas last summer. (laughs) (laughs) I started DJing when I was like 12 or 13, and I just used to make mixtapes on cassette tapes of like my favorite songs. And then my mom finally bought me like CDJ 100s, which are like literally the first version ever of them which allowed me to like make more seamless mixes. And I remember taking lessons from my friend's older brother. And then I started doing Sweet Sixteens and things like that for my friends. And my mom would help me carry like the equipment and my records and everything. (laughs) And then I went to boarding school and I've set up my equipment in my dorm room and I turned it on. And we, of course, like dumb idiots, turn it on too loud. And my dorm parent or whatever you want to call him comes in. He goes, get those out of here. (laughs) <laughs> and so that was the end of my DJ career, probably close to like seven or eight years. And Drew has like a really similar story, but like different. I remember visiting my sister in England. She went to Bristol University and like the electronic scene there was incredible. They had all these, you know, Boys Noise and Alex Gopher and Etienne de Cressy and all these amazing DJs. And I remember like going to a party with her one night and it was just like this amazing feeling on the dance floor. Kind of like what Shaq said, he went to Tomorrow World. It's like everyone's just together. There's no like elitism. There's no like fighting. Everyone's here experiencing the music the same way. And I just like hadn't felt that in the New York in so long in my life. And I was like, I'm bringing this back to New York at any cost. And I just threw myself back into like DJing and electronic music. And I would throw like my own parties in New York the way I envisioned they should be. And they were really fun and people really liked them. And I started DJing more and more at nightclubs around New York. And I graduated college. I was like an art gallery receptionist for like five years. So I'd work from like 10 a.m. to 6 p.m., take a nap, and then work from 10 p.m. to 4 a.m. in my clubs every night. And that was great. But I also realized that like I wasn't committed to either thing. I was kind of doing a little bit of both and just kind of getting by barely. And the guy who I was DJing with at the time decided he wanted to go off and do his own thing. And I was like, we have all these things that we can do. This is such a shame, but I'm missing like the most important element to it, which is the music part. And that was really lucky because, you know, at the same time, Drew was graduating college and producing music, heard some of his songs online. And we met, you know, and that was kind of like the beginning of what the Chainsmokers was, which was like, I have shows that we can make money at, but you're a producer. So let's build this Chainsmokers into like a real artist project. But when we started, we always had the bigger ambitions and music was always the center of our universe, but it was like meant to be more of like a platform for us to build other things on top of. And it kind of like relates how the Shaq was saying is that like we started launched a venture capital fund like a year ago now. And it was like the same thing. Like we wanted to enter this entirely new world with people that are pretty heavy hitters and made their lives in this space. And we felt like we needed to do the same thing that like Shaq did when he entered the DJ space, which is we wanted to take it really seriously and like respect the people that have been doing it so well. So we spent like nine 
months every day for 10 hours a day doing Zoom calls with everyone and anyone that would speak to us. They like welcomed us in, you know, and that made a huge difference in the way people looked at us and respected us in the space. So while it's not like performing on a stage, it's very important just that parallel of when you're entering something new, you know, you got to pay your dues and you got to like show respect to the people before you. So that's my story. Yeah. And ask a million questions. And even if sometimes they probably don't feel like the smartest questions, right? Yeah. I mean, we're never the smartest guys in the room. <laughs> you have to start <laughs> but, somewhere, right? But we're definitely the hardest working. Yeah. <laughs> we definitely lead with that. And I think like if you're getting into a new space and you, as long as you're open-minded and you come with like humility and you just ask for help, asking for help, people like sometimes don't know how to do that. And if you just ask for help and say, hey, I really love this and I really want to be here and learn this, what can you teach me? And if you come like that way, most good people are going to be receptive to that. And so we've been so fortunate that we've been like welcomed into that community. And I still feel like I know nothing, but we know a lot more than when we started. What's the goal with what you guys are doing there? You know, Alex and I have been an angel investing for, you know, as soon as like the Chainsmokers had a little bit of clout in the typical things like brands and CPG companies where people would want to use the Chainsmokers likeness. And we, you know, made a lot of really good friends in the tech world that kind of opened our eyes to what other kind of deal flow is out there. And, um... You know, it got to the point where you thought we could get good accessibility into deals that other people wouldn't see. And, you know, we had the crazy idea to start a fund. And what we really look for is like other kids that are like us, that are super tenacious, that really want to build something that like no one's thought of yet and are delusional enough to think it's possible and figure out ways to support them. And, and you know, we've had a really good time. We've learned so much and you get insight into what hopefully will be the future before it happens. And so it's been a very exciting space to start cutting our teeth in. But it's the same as Shaq. I mean, Shaq, you're like a legendary investor too. You've done like Five Guys, Nests, Car Washes. You have all these amazing businesses that you're a part of. I remember like us looking at you as like a model of success of how we want to build the future of the Chainsmokers brand and like using our association properly uh, in a non-dilutive way to like accomplish, you know, amazing things. You know what I like about smart people? What? Is they all work for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is that the secret? <laughs> That's it. That's it. The thing about all three of you guys is like anyone that takes a look back at what you all have done, it's like, damn, you can do anything and you can change course. I just think the amount of different things that you are all able to excel in is pretty impressive. So Shaq, like, why do you think You've been able to do all of that from the entrepreneurship, the acting, the multi-platinum. What is it? One, it's all about having fun. That's the first thing I like to do. Second thing is I like to take advantage of opportunities. And lastly, I have great people around me. I have people that are agitators. I have people that are smarter. I have people that put me in my place when I get out of place. And we have a real great team. I'm big on relationships. I would love to sit here and say, yeah, I invested in Google. I'm the smartest guy in the world. Let me tell you how the Google deal happened. I'm at Four Seasons eating breakfast next to some big wigs. One of the big wigs brings his kids. I'm babysitting the kids. I'm playing with the kids. And of course, the kids know me. We're having a good time. Boom, boom, boom. And the guy looks at me and says, man, I know a lot of superstars. Nobody has ever played my kids like that. I want to introduce you to something called Google. I, I had no idea what he's talking about. But like I said, you know what? Wow. I know somebody that does. I said, call my guy. My guy called me and said, hey, man, this this sounds pretty good. We should put some money up. So he put some money up. And then one day I'm sitting at the house and my uncle comes in because he's all into technology and stuff. He said, man, I didn't know you invested in Google. I forgot all about it. We got a really, really big hit. 
So then I used to go to all the tech conferences. There was this young, beautiful, bald-haired guy by the name of Jeff Bezos. And Jeff Bezos said, if you invest in things that's going to change people's lives, it should be a win-win. So I just started doing that. I started, you know, angel investing in companies. Because when I was your, your age, guys, I was always trying to do the get-rich-quick schemes. Like, hey, man, get some toilet paper. Put your face on the toilet paper because you're the shit. Boom, 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 boom. <laughs> we said I got a deal and you give me 10 million, I'll turn it into 220 million. If the multiple was crazy, you could always get me. Hey man, give me 10 million and in three years it's going to be 750 million. I would do that right away. Wouldn't even look at the deal. And then I figured, now one of my uncles told me, hey man, if it sounds like it's too good to be true, stay away from it because it's not true. And then I learned the business and then I started investing in things that just changed people's lives and it's just been a, you know, win-win for me. So I commend you guys on what you're doing and love to be a part of that. If you ever need anything from me, you know, you guys can call me anytime. I mean, we'd be honored. And I think like what you said, especially the VC, investing in companies, it's like, if you're not doing it for a reason, like Shaq said, like to change people's lives, if you don't have like inherent motive that like motivates you to be involved in that space, it takes so long for these companies to like have a liquidity event. I mean, these are, companies you're investing in that take 10 years to actually see something back. So if you're doing it to get rich, it's probably, I mean, yes, it's, it's a great space to be in, obviously, but like, you know, there needs to be some like deeper desire to be in that space and start, you know, working with these founders and helping them try to build their dreams. Yeah. Deeper desire and motivation. Shaq, I love seeing you footing the bill for the man that was buying the engagement ring. That was an awesome story. Yeah, I'm going shopping too soon, Shaq. Let me know what neighborhood you're going to be in. <laughs> Before that happened, my guru is Dr. Lucille O'Neill, my mom. And she's a very loving woman. And we were watching TV and we were watching the news and it was just so much negative. And she looks at me and says, I'm tired. Tired of people fighting. Tired of this. Tired of killing. I'm just tired. The rest of my years on this earth, I just want to make people happy. I just want to be all about peace. So every philanthropy thing that I do, every charity thing was all designed by her and my late father. So I was like, you know what? That's what I'm going to start doing. Whenever I leave the house, grocery store, gas station, I'm going to make somebody's day. So I was in there trying to buy some loop earrings. And a guy, hardworking guy, I can tell, and he was concerned. He said, hey, uh, how much do I owe? And the guy gave him the price. He was like, uh. And basically, the guy was like, okay, can I get it now? I'll give you this check, and then I'll give you my credit card. You can take it monthly. And the guy was like, no, we need the payment now. And he was like, he wanted to propose to his girlfriend. And I was like, I, I got it, bro. And he was like, man, I can't do it. I said, bro, I own the store. And I walked him over to my little section where I got my jewelry line. I said, see that? Check jewelry. I own the store. I'm paying for it. I don't care what you want. It wasn't nothing to me, but it was a lot to him. Yeah. And stuff like that. I never want to go viral. I don't do it for that. You know, if I could just change somebody's life and make them happy. Yesterday, matter of fact, Best Buy, it was a family of four. So I'm in there trying to get a new phone. And I see a family of four proudly have a 43-inch TV. That's too small. Four people like, I would go crazy. <laughs> but I mean, but the guy was happy. And I said, sir, is this your family? He said, yeah. I said, go get a 75-inch. Because keep in mind, the 75 inch is only $800. I know this for a fact because every time a big TV comes out, I'm the dummy that has to buy it first. Yeah. <laughs> so when I bought my 75 inch three years ago, it was 4000 
because I always got to be the first to have it. Yeah. So now I, I walk, they're just sitting on the floor, $698, which kind of makes me mad. So he has family, and I saw it, it was a 43 inch. I was like, I can't have no family looking at a 40 inch TV. So I said, uh, you got a truck? He's like, I got a truck. I said, man, let's go get the 75. He started crying. I said, bro, you don't, you don't have to cry. Why are you doing this? I said, just get it. Don't have fun. He's like, is this a TV show? I was like, no, it's nobody here. They're just, what do I owe you? I said, brother, you don't owe me nothing. Just take the TV and just go. But that felt good to me. I mean, obviously not every day you go out and get to you know run into you and have something like that happen. But it's like, I feel like what you said is true. It's like, we're all used to such darkness in life that like someone doing something nice for you is like such an uncommon thing these days that you don't even believe it when it's happening, which is a shame. That's the kind of like status quo right now is that it's bad news everywhere. Yeah. We do a lot of charity work and obviously we'll continue to do it. But for us personally, like I've been thinking kind of more along the lines that you have, where it's like sometimes you write these checks off into these organizations. You don't know who they're benefiting or like where it ultimately lands. I'd much rather like go to the some person that was affected by whatever, a forest fire or something and cut a family a check and like really see the change happen firsthand. Yes. And we do a lot of stuff with like the Yes Network in LA. And it's like, we live in LA. Like I see these kids on the street and like being able to make a difference directly to them, you know, something you see every day, like that to me is such a more powerful thing. If you could explain for our listeners what it is like when you are DJing, and then also, how has it changed over the years? First of all, it's the best feeling in the world. And honestly, this past year has been, you know, I feel like we probably had the same feeling that Shaq had when you stopped playing basketball. It was like, you know, you miss that part of your personality and you got to come to terms with like, you don't realize how when you're on the court or you're out of performance, I mean, like, Alex and I love, especially the XS show that Shaq was uh, referring to earlier. It's like, that's a place that, you know, we pull up to Vegas, we have it dialed, we invite everyone we know that's in town to the show. The club's already packed, especially like now that I've started singing, I jump from behind the booth and I'm running around the club. And, you know, when we got to Vegas, when we were like super small time and, you know, opening for, you know, other great DJs in the city, a lot of it was just like behind the booth, you get up there, you play your music. And we wanted to like kind of break the fourth wall there. And if you come to our Chainsmokers show at XS now, we're jumping around. I got a tray of shots. I'm jumping into the crowd. I'm going up to tables. I'm taking photos with people in between songs. And luckily, there's still in crowds from other shows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> sorry. That night that Jack's describing too. We've done that night 176 times. Wow. That access. When we played at Huck's before that. Oh my that. God. And you know, the crowd's different every single night. It's a new challenge. It's a new thing. But like you realize kind of developed this almost like superpower of like, this is my moment where like everyone in this crowd has gone through something different this week or this year. And mm -hmm. I know in this moment, Alex and I are going to go in and we're going to control the energy and I'm going to make sure, like I'm always looking around at every single table, every person in the crowd, who needs a drink, who looks uncomfortable, who needs to be acknowledged, you know? And I do like whatever I can to make that happen and like really break that fourth wall as a performer and like make them feel like, you know, I went to a Chainsmokers show and I felt like I belonged. That's something that like we want to continue to do forever in whatever format we're able to do it in. And for me, it's two things and two things only, no matter what you're going through, can stop you in your tracks and forget. That's sports and music. Hell yeah. That's it. Amen. Fights, divorce, struggling, good music, calm you down. A great game will calm you down. So I look at it from a responsibility angle. 
When I was young, my father took me to a game one time, and it was a terrible game. And he was very upset. So he turns the music on and hits me in my chest. Boom. If you ever make it big time and people pay a lot of money to see you, make sure you put on a show. So if I got 5,000, 50,000, 100,000, it's my responsibility to give them what they came for. Now, as a new guy coming in and doing what they do, if I get 100,000 people and I don't do well, makes them look bad. It's just like playing. If I'm in the NBA and I don't do well, Jordan and those guys don't look good. And I do just like he said. I'm looking at people. I'm calling people out. I try to jump in the car. I'm slam down. So I want to put on the show for these kids because I know what they're going through. And this last year, I've been struggling. Been struggling, not not being able to have that. Been in the lab making new stuff, but you don't know if it works until you look at the crowd and you see them jumping up and down. So a lot of stuff may work in your house and your room, but you won't know if it works until you play it in front of 100,000 people. So the world is starting to open up, but I miss it. You know, we're back to doing sports, but even sports aren't the same. But sports and music are the only two things that can calm people down. People can hate each other on the outside, but at the concert, be right next to each other. People can hate each other on the outside, but at a game, be rooting for the same team. We were in Hong Kong right before the protests went crazy, and there were a lot of pro-Hong Kong, pro-China people there, and they were protesting before we went on stage. But for that, like, 100 minutes that we were on stage, everyone was having fun. That's it. It helps you release. And I think, like, just in general, like, being a good person in process of, like, being an athlete or a performer, a musician, it's not hard to be a good person. You know what I mean? And it makes oh. such a difference, like, acknowledging people on the street. And then I've always been amazed. Calvin Harris was, like, our favorite DJ when Drew and I first met. And it was, like, finally meeting him. We're like, what's your email, Calvin? He's like, Calvin Harris at Hotmail.com. And you're like, oh, damn it. It was not, I got to guess that. It was not easy the whole time, right? I hope that's not his real email. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't know if it's Hotmail anymore. But like for us, I think, you know, when fans reach out to us on email through our manager or whatever, just run to someone at the airport or someone reaches out and says, hey, can we get a birthday shout out video or whatever? It's like, it's such a little effort on our part to like literally change the course of someone's entire life potentially. And, you know, people reach out to us all the time about our music. And it's actually like really oddly more beneficial for us because like we'll be in a rut in the studio or just like creatively uninspired or having a week that's not great and someone's like i can't tell you how much this song changed our whole lives and it's like man like i fucking love that song that we never play that song out and i never like see people interacting with our music you know we can't physically always see that and so it's like it's such a great feeling to be reminded of like that superpower you have and then like the responsibility of using it well. I think we've always been good guys, but I think we're finally learning how to use that tool more effectively in the world, which is something I'm really excited about for like the next chapter of what we have coming. What song do people talk about most? I mean, obviously Closer, something like this, songs like that are like our biggest songs, but I feel like songs like Paris, Roses, Roses, I feel like really resonated with a lot of people. I don't know. What do you think, Joe? Yeah, definitely Roses. I feel like also Roses was like kind of the beginning of the Chainsmoker sound that I think we're most known for. And what's really cool about that song is it's like, just like the whimsical nature of it doesn't really fit into what a typical pop song structure would be. And I feel like sometimes when you have a song that gets like super big, you know, as big as like Closer, you know, I think about like myself as like a music fan, when there's a song that everyone knows, it's almost like it doesn't belong to you anymore. I feel like Roses is one of those that like our fans felt like this is our thing. Like we started this, you know, that's really cool. That's a hard thing to replicate, but 
It's an interesting thing to think about when you're making music. Whether you're like, you have a company and you have a hit product or you're on like a winning streak as an athlete or you definitely want hits, but like something that we're really thinking about for our fourth album, which we've been working on all during quarantine. There are a couple of songs that will be hits, but like, let's make sure like the rest of this body of work is something that our fans can take ownership over that can belong to them and belong to us. And, you know, you have that shiny single that brings people into the project, but then there's making sure that there's so much depth in the rest of the project that is like your relationship with your fans only, you know, and anyone's welcome to the club, but like not every song is made for everybody, you know? So what can your fans expect with the new sound? We really lean into the emotion that I think people started following this for in the beginning. I think there's this trend that a lot of artists, including us, fall victim to, whereas you come out with one sound and you get known for it and then you want to prove to everybody that you can do other things. And part of that's natural because like your taste as a creative person or your interest or inspiration moves and you got to follow that. However, I think Alex and I really intentionally like dialed back into the feeling that you got when you heard Roses or Closer for the first time. You know, these songs that like we really had fun making and that really like strike this a kind of like nostalgic, uh, melancholy type of feeling. I feel like that's like our style. And every song is really fun. Every song slaps. Like there's always a moment that you're gonna you kind of turn your head and you're like, yeah, okay, here, you're giving me that moment. You know, we tried to do that in the past, but you know, we definitely elevated that intention on this album. That's awesome. Alex, is there anything in particular you're super stoked about for that album? So many things. First of all, especially coming out of COVID, we got really lucky. I mean, we yeah. finished like our last cycle, basically, like our tour ended, our album came out end of December. And then we were like, we're done. This is the beginning of the next chapter. Like we have finished everything at the same time. We were planning to take a step back, get off social media, finish yeah. our like engagements that we had like been locked into, but more or less just kind of fade off into oblivion and work on this next album. And, you know, it was crazy. We went to Hawaii for the first month in January and started the project. And then like two weeks later, COVID happened. The biggest thing that we were nervous about was like the world passing us by while we were like busy working on what was next. And the whole world stopped basically. But in the process of also being in COVID, it's like hard to be creative and tap into those things when we always draw so much from like our experiences in life. And I think we like really had to like dig deep in order to like achieve those things. And I think we did a really great job, but I'm so excited to give our fans that music that I think they deserve from us that we kind of like didn't give them for like a couple of years. We were always releasing music, but it was like we were in this vicious cycle of just putting things out because we thought that's what we had to do. And while we were touring like 280 days a year, and I think like when you're a new artist, it's important to like keep people's eyes on you and show people what you're made of. But we reached the point where it was like, we weren't giving ourselves the time to creatively explore what we potentially could. And, you know, this project was amazing. We got to work with Emily Warren, who's like our best friend and wrote Don't Let Me Down with us in Paris. And we got to work with Ian Kirkpatrick, who's like probably one of the best producers on the planet. Weathen, who's like, I mean, Shaq knows Weathen. He's like one of the best producers in dance music. And that was like a really cool experience to like bring our friends in that we think are super talented to like help us make something that's just next level for us. So I'm really stoked. That's awesome. Shaq, you got some help from your family. Oh my gosh, the viral video in your kitchen. Is that where it was, where you were DJing in your kitchen? Yes. So I was in the lab and I was feeling down and I was messing around. I said, let me see if I dubstep this out how it would sound. And I just played it and it dropped. But we had to have many concerts in the house. I had my six kids, two of their friends each. So we had like 20 people in the house. So 
I wouldn't let them go out. So, you know, in the morning, wake up, let them play ball, let them tire themselves out. But at nighttime, they got tired of going to the theater and just sitting around. So I was like, all right, let's just have a concert. So play some rap music. I played that. And all my kids have been to my shows. And they really love all the kids just bob and have a great time. And that was just something that I, me and my one of my good friends, Brian Biotti, had made. And then we, we just played it and it went viral. But that's the sound I like when I go out with these kids. I want these kids to jump up, have a good time, and release as Drew Tiger takes big puffs of his <laughs> e-cigarette. <laughs> go ahead, Drew. Have fun, buddy. We're going to end with this. We've got a short segment that we call X's and O's. It's rapid fire questions, right? I'm going to start with Shaq. Best advice to an aspiring DJ? I would suggest they have fun. Everyone has a different style. Everyone has their different go-to sound. You know, I don't really make music. So my style is I have to give the kids stuff that's hot. And I have to mix it and blend it away to where it excites them. Uh, if I was an artist, I'd probably have my own stuff. But it's probably easier for me because I get to take all the hot stuff, mix it, and blend it, and then just put it out. You just have to, you know, it's hard to, you know, read the crowd sometimes. Sometimes when I go to Vegas, I already have my set thing. I would have my laptop. And then another guy said, bro, you don't need a laptop. You put on some hard drives. And so now I go off hard. I got, I got 2,000 songs on each hard drive. So a lot of times, like, I'll have my first two or three songs, and then I just try and read the crowd. But my advice to them would be, look, just have fun. And before you succeed, you must first learn to fail. Because when I first came in, I tried to do all 128. Bombed. And then I went and watched, saw a kid named Skrillex. I was like, oh my God, I like that. And then I seen another kid named Nightmare. Yeah, he's crazy, Tyler. And I was like, okay, let me... I can't do the ding, 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 ding. I, I can't do that. So I, I like the... Boom. I like, you know, 75 in the 150. So before you succeed, you must first learn to fail. Like, I'm doing big crowds now, but when I first entered their genre, the people were hard on me and I had to prove myself. It's just like basketball. You know, when I first came in basketball, I wasn't Shaq. I had to go up against Jordan, Barkley, Dominique, Bird, and you just keep fighting to improve yourself. But I have my sound now and I know the genre that I play to. So 75, 150 headbangers. What would your advice be to someone who is an aspiring NBA player? Just also say, have fun, follow your dreams, and whoever the best guy is, kill him. (laughs) (laughs) Drew and Alex, how about you guys? What's your best advice? I got one. Turn the camera off so you can smoke your (laughs) (laughs) e-cigarette. That is kind of on brand for us. We are the chain smokers. Good. I see where you went with that. Oh, okay. Find your own path. Like there's a lot of derivative stuff out there. And like, it's great to like learn from people you admire and respect. But ultimately, like the way you're going to make a car lane for yourself is by doing something unique and true to like what excites you. That's the hardest part probably is like finding what that thing is. But like experimenting and really like going deep into it. Like I wasn't a musician when we started the Chainsmokers, but now I play piano like pretty well. And it's like, you've got to commit yourself to these things and take it seriously. Nothing's going to like happen by mistake, whether you're an athlete or whatever. It's like, you really got to commit yourself and work hard. And there's going to be plenty of setbacks, like Shaq said, and you're going to fail. But it's how you pick yourself back up and just keep going. Drew, what's the cardinal sin of DJing? The one thing that you do not do? 
I got to answer this carefully, I feel like. I know. Letting your like ego and your music taste override the vibe of the room. I used to do that. You're just being like, yo, I'm, I'm obsessed with this. And so I'm going to make you all listen to it. And realizing that like you're one piece of the party and, and everyone having a good time is really what makes it somewhere where people want to come to again. I mean, you have to just know your audience and read the room and, and know why people are there and cater to that. There are songs that I can't play because I know people don't come to see me for those things. And we try to sneak them in like some of like the deeper house stuff that we love and we listen to with our friends. I'll try to sneak them in at the right moment in our sets. And that's how we kind of indulge in those moments. But like, ultimately, our goal is to make a chain smoker show like the most fun place it can be. And sometimes that means like you're just catering to something that's not exactly your taste. And you guys are good at that. When I went to see y'all in excess, you dropped at 75 or 150. I was like, that's the chain smokers? Damn. Yeah, we go hard too. We like the same stuff. Yeah. Yeah. My boy's like, this is why they got the big room, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I'm like, okay. All right. I love this one. Biggest win. And Shaq, I want to mention that Udonis Haslam was on the show and he said his favorite championship team from the Heat was 2006. And he said it because nobody knew that you guys partied like rock stars. (laughs) You did. You know, Pat Riley is very strict. See, Pat is like, Wake up at eight, practice at 10. I was like, Pat, no, this is Miami. We're going to party. Let them party all night. Let's start practice at 12. Well, I don't know what I... I said, Pat, you let's start practice at 12. You name what you want to do. You got to win 15 on 20. That's when you want to win on that 17-game winning streak. You know, sometimes you just have to change things up. But that was a great team. My biggest win is just meeting my favorite people. I know I'm 49 years old now, but I remember when it was a chance that I wasn't going to be Shaq. It's to be a medium level juvenile delinquent. And now I get to see chain smokers, Tiesto, Jordan Barkley. I'm getting interviewed by you. I'm just one of the happiest guys in the world. So everything that I do every day is a win for me. Because I used to be a, a rough one. I used to be a really rough kid. What made the difference for you? I started listening. So the first thing that made, made the difference for me, believe it or not, is an article about a guy named John Conkak. He made 15 for three, five million a year. This was in 80, 88. And my father told me, if you listen to me, you can make that type of money. So all the rough stuff went out the window. And then the first concert I went to was LL Cool J, Public Enemy, and the Fat Boys and Big Daddy Kane. So music and sports has always been my thing. On the way to the game, I got to have music. On the way from the game, got to have music. So those two things, now that I'm living my after-retirement life, like when my guy called me and said the chain smokers want to come to the house, I was like, do they know who I am? <laughs> like, like <laughs> I know who they are. Are you kidding me? That was like the best day of my life. I'd seen that house in like videos oh that you made like, you know, way, way back in the day. Like these are all right. things that I like idolized growing up. I must have watched Blue Chips like a thousand times. That's awesome. And then when I met them, I was like, man, these, these kids are cool. They're really cool. Like, I meet a lot of superstars, so I get uh, different things. But when they came to the house, they came by themselves. No bodyguard. We did a commercial. We had fun. They showed me some tips on the DJ thing. And when they left, I was like, holy shit. They just showed me something to do for my first. Like, it, was, it was awesome. Like, forget I'm Shaq, the great basketball player. I'm still a regular person with feelings, so... Being that other famous people know who I am, when you wouldn't think that they know y'all, that's a big win for me. 
even right now, like many NBA players can say they did a podcast <laughs> with, the, with the Chainsmokers. I was surprised when we walked into the kitchen, though, because you were eating pancakes without syrup. And I was like, that's crazy. Yes, yeah. <laughs> You're like, that's a cardinal sin. <laughs> hey, Shaq, do you have any aspirations to run for higher office? No, never. Because when you run for office, you either have to be left or right. You have to be up or down. You have to be black and white. I like finding people that are down and out and lifting them up, period. So there's a school around the corner from my house. They was getting ready to close the school down because the teachers didn't have money for laptops to teach online school. Don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. Stuff like that. I want to be fighting with people and arguing with people because one thing I'm big on growing up in a military family is respect. See, because of social media, people have lost respect. For example, Drew could say something about a song, and I could say something about a song. Just because he's this way and I'm that way doesn't mean he's wrong. Doesn't mean I'm wrong. But because I respect him, I listen to his views. Right now, we got a lot of people, don't listen to that, Drew. Don't play 128. Play 75. And the world is all messed up. I think we need to get back to respect and loving each other. Like, you don't have to agree on everything. God has made us all individuals. We're going to have different opinions. But I think like now the world is just so, ah, right, you do this, you do that. And I'm just sick of it. So now I'm doing like my mom said, I don't want to fight. I don't want to argue. I just want to make people happy. And I do that by working at TNT, doing my DJ shows. And every time I leave the house to go buy something for myself, buy something for somebody else. So I don't ever want to be a senator or a governor or president. No, it's too much work. Drew, I see your Grammy behind you. And Alex, I see your dog on the wall. Can you tell me the story about the picture, the painting behind you? It was a gift from one of my roommates. I mean, I love my dog. Oh, it's more than beautiful. Anything. I've always had a very special connection with my dogs growing up. I, my parents fought a lot when I was younger. And my dog was like the thing that always like, came into my room and hung out with me and consoled me. And obviously, everyone knows dogs are just like ride or die. So I got a special place for... My dog's name's Mushu. That's Mushu on the wall there. So she's somewhere around this house, but, uh... Moosh, where you at? I'm oh, She's outside. <laughs> okay. Do you guys live close to each other? Yeah, like five minutes. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. You gotta come by when you're in L.A. Where at? In the valley? Yeah, we're in, like, West Hollywood in the hills. Okay, deal. Yeah. Just come make some music with us. Here, Moosh. No problem. Drew and Alex, thank you guys so much. Shaq, it's so good to have you on here. Thank you, guys. I love the connection, too. I just appreciate all the stories. It was so good talking. Yes, and whatever you need from us, Lindsay, let us know. Thanks, Lindsay. This is going to go down as one of my favorite conversations. And this means so much to me because of what I've done professionally covering Shaq, but also a little bit of my personal life too. So I want to give you the context. So first of all, covering Shaq during the years when he was playing in the NBA, you realize quickly the players that really impact you, that impact the sport in a great way that you are going to one day tell your children about and share stories about the first time you met them, when you covered them in their biggest games, etc. Shaq is one of those guys, and I feel so lucky to have covered him during the course of his career. Also, to be around him as he is now a broadcaster and doing all these other things. But the DJ piece of it, man, to hear him explain that, wow, like it was so cool to hear that passion. But the Chainsmokers... I literally listen to the song Closer at least four times in a row on my drive 
dropping my kids off at school in the morning because my son, who is seven, is obsessed with that song right now. And as soon as it's over, he's like, mom, please play it again, play it again. And that had nothing to do with me doing this interview. That was happening even before we knew that we were talking to the chain smokers. So these two worlds coming together. And when I was in the midst of that conversation, I'm seeing the chain smokers geek out on Shaq because of what big fans they are. And then I'm seeing the opposite from Shaq. It just gave me the chills. Like, this is exactly what we are so excited about with the artist and the athlete. It's that because watching them be so excited to be in the presence of the other, it really broke it down in a different relatability factor for me. And I'm wondering and hoping that maybe it did the same thing for you, because for me, it made me think about the chain smokers in a totally different light, because I don't even know how they do what they do. Although I loved hearing the process. I loved hearing how they make their decisions and the thought that goes into the music and also especially how they put their fans first with that. I didn't think about that before about like being selfish in music, you know, they're so mature in their description of things. And that's something that really struck me. Shaq describing how he missed the of the crowd going crazy and that that was part of what he needed to get back and why he went into DJing. I mean, I just think that's really an awesome, vulnerable type of thing to admit. And it's really cool. All these guys I thought were highly entertaining together. And the story about the people leaving the club because the chain smokers were next door. I thought that was hilarious. Anyway, I just want to thank all of these guys, Alex, Drew, Shaq. It was so cool to sit with them. I feel sort of like I was given an education and I want to leave you with the fact that I hope the one thing that everyone takes out of this is not unlike what other guests we've had have said, but the blueprint for success is really very simple. It is to ask a bunch of questions, to be a good person, to exude kindness, and to come at it from an authentic place and to hear Alex and Drew tell it and Shaq. It can be anything, no mountains too high, but you can do it if you just start and put one foot in front of the other and do it the right way. I'm really grateful for the examples that they shared. If you guys enjoyed this episode, I really hope you'll go and check out the other ones. We've got so many interesting pairings in the artist and the athlete. You can find it wherever you get your podcast. Go check out other episodes. Let me know what you think too. I would love to interact with you. You can follow me on Instagram at lindsaycz. Also follow along with Sony Podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to this conversation and we'll see you next time.